<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The world can be a scary place, and the world of horror can be a refuge from fear. It can be a therapeutic domicile to help us deal with our wounds, our fragility, our fractious lives. We have all known tragedy, some more than others, and we deal with them in different ways. If you are an artist, a painter, a writer, a musician, an actor, a filmmaker, tragedy can bring depth to your work, can help you draw something wonderful out of something painful and terrible. As a filmmaker in the dark genre, the personal losses of my family members led me into deeper, more emotional explorations of fear and death. Riding the bullet was the direct result of losing my younger brother a few years before. I've lost two brothers and a sister over the years, as well as both parents and close friends and associates. The horror genre is one that allows us to dig deep into the taboo subjects of death and terror. I would like to think that the emotional experiences I've gone through have fed and enriched the work that I do. And I'm certainly not the only one. David Cronenberg was suffering through a very painful dissolution of a marriage that led to his brilliantly bitter and horrific movie, The Brood. His mother's cancer fed the agonizing deterioration of Seth Brundle from man to monster in The Fly. We've all experienced pain and loss, and we all deal with them in various ways. As creators, it can deepen us if we allow it to. Storytelling is a sharing experience, and the veracity of a true step into the pool of darkness can help us share what we fear, what hurts us, and help us to cope. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts a lot, but it makes us deeper, better, more emotionally rich artists and human beings. Osgood Perkins has DNA deep in the world of entertainment. His namesake grandfather was a great and highly regarded actor, and his father, Anthony Perkins, is surely best known as Norman Bates from Psycho. His mother, Barry Berenson, was an acclaimed photographer, actress, and model. We'll talk with Oz about fear, fairy tales, and a life in the cinema after this. It's 2020, and surfing the web is dead. All the horror news you need is now just one click away. Fangoria.com is your first destination for all the horror news of the day, featuring a constant curation of the Fango team's favorite links from across the internet. You'll also find deep dives and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, as well as exclusive access to the Fangoria vault. Check out Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use promo code POSTMORTEM for 15% off right now. From visionary horror director Osgood Perkins and an executive producer of Insidious comes Gretel and Hansel. Forget the fairy tale you know and witness a dark and twisted adaptation of the beloved story. 
Sophia Lillis of It stars in Gretel and Hansel in theaters nationwide this Friday. Get tickets at GretelandHanselTheMovie.com. So, Oz, you come from a theatrical background, and uh, how did that affect you? Uh, you? You started out as an actor. You did a lot of acting before you started directing. Is it in the DNA? Was it always expected of you, or was this a choice that you made? I don't think, I don't think it was ever expected of me. I think that, you know, it, it was the kind of thing that you, you, you see your parent doing what they do, and especially when they're as impactful as mine uh, were, certainly. And, and before my parents, my, my grand, grandmothers, my grandfathers, and the people, everybody's sort of making things and making really beautiful things. And right, the fashion industry, too, was part of your family background. Yeah, I mean, Elsa Schiaparelli was my mom's grandmother, my great-grandmother, and she's, uh, you know, really a luminary in the, in the fashion world of the 30s and the 40s, and sort of surrealist and uh, really a, a very forward-thinking uh, artist. Um, I feel like there was probably some sort of unspoken self-pressure, I guess, to sort mm. of live in that rarefied world. Uh, I, I can't imagine that... It, it was certainly attractive, and it was certainly, um, and I think I, I think I intuited sort of what you said in your introduction about how it isn't just making shit up, you know, like right. it isn't just um, sort of dancing. It's not like dancing like a monkey, so someone will applaud for you. It's actually all of the stuff that we do. Like it really does. Um, it, it 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 comes from a deep place, and it serves to better us, and it serves to cleanse us and it serves to um, um, help us process and understand and to individuate right if, if that's the if that's the task for all people on earth is to sort of become ourselves um, mm-hmm. it, it does seem like the arts uh, it, it's really the way to do it I mean and I guess that's how I always feel when I see people who are who are not sort of artists for a living but you know the first thing they do when they come home from their job at Walmart is they want to draw comic books or they want right. to do their thing and it's like even if no one ever sees those things uh, it's 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 such good um, exercise for the spirit so I think I think I I think I intuited early on that doing that making things and making especially beautiful things um was a, a kind of a medicine, you know, a kind mm-hmm. of and a, a medicine of, for melancholy. Um, exactly, yeah. a medicine for living, right? And and uh, it's proven to be that for me. I feel that way. Now, your life has been brushed by tragedy. You lost your father when you were a teenager. Your mother passed away at nine eleven. Um, do you think that might have been aimed you more towards making of dark movies? Your three films are pretty much horror movies or in that genre. Do you think that affected you? Yeah, I, I mean, I know for a fact uh, that it did. The the, the in, in really sort of one for one direct, in really a direct line. Uh, the Black Coat's Daughter, which was the first thing that I ever really wrote for myself, really wrote for myself by myself, under my own speed, like <laughs> for my own reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, really, you, you know, it, as much as it's about this or it's about that or it takes place at a girls' school or it's the devil or the thing, what was really at the heart of the telling. For, of that for me was the fact that 
when my mom died on September 11th, 2001, and as sort of unimaginable as that was for every human being uh, on earth, uh, quadruply unimaginable for me, in in the first sort of in the first kind of first hours of dealing with it, there was all of a sudden this realization: Oh, this is September eleventh, two thousand one, and my father died on September twelfth, nineteen ninety two. And so there was a moment of like, what the fuck does that? What the fuck does that mean? Does that does it carry any meaning? Does it is it is it meaningful in some positive way? Mm. Is it is it is it deeply sort of non-meaningful in in a kind of an absurd way? Is it is it the universe saying no everything is held together, or is it the universe saying it couldn't be a bigger joke? And so that became the kind of a question for me, almost like what's the value of this kind of these two people, these two central people for me leaving the planet nine years minus one day. Wow. Apart, you know what I mean? And sort of mm-hmm. making the 11th and 12th just like bang, bang for me. So out of that grew the movie, really, which told in two time periods sort of situates the characters in locations, but more than anything, more than any of the physical locations, it was the location of time. The original title of the movie was February. And mm. February was sort of, is sort of, you know, you could point to my life and say September. You know, it's like a a, 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 a location in time where stuff for me at least seems to really happen. And so the idea that that sort of the story of that movie would be told in two time periods that need to be that need to sooner or later come together and in a sense be the same uh was was powered the 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 kind of off-kilter narrative of the way that we that I that I shaped that and it became about the mysticism, sort of the mystery, um, and the kind of enchantment almost of of timing like that, and and wondering, and sort of it's sort of like an exploration of of what that could possibly mean, which is a theme that runs throughout your work, and stylistically too, you've made some really distinctive choices. One of the rarest things a director can have is an identifiable voice. It's what we all aim for to be able to tell a story in a unique way. And you have discovered the elegance of the static frame. And it's one of the original uses of cinematography in the earliest of films, and yet you've made it eloquent in a way that the action takes place in the frame. The frame does not necessarily accommodate what's going on within it. So tell me about the choice, the reasoning behind that. I've, you know, I've... In with a Blackcoat's daughter, which was really the first thing I, I had ever done. I, I hadn't made any shorts. There were no. Com- I never made a commercial or a music video. I never made a student film. I never did a favor for anybody and did a thing like so. On day one of Blackcoat's daughter, it was really day one of 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 me making movies and sort of. It was uh, your birth. Exactly. It, it was exactly here I come, and so um, w- when it came to sort of static framing and the need to not move the camera and to sort of set, you know, I've, I've sent the, uh, Steadicam guy away <laughs> on all three movies. They've yeah. tried on all three movies. Hey, here's the Steadicam guy. And I said, yeah. it's not, it, it doesn't, I don't, I don't like that. I don't, it, I don't want to follow people around. It's not the, it's not, it's for me, it's more, these are the things that happen and watch as they happen and, 
and there's a certain there's a certain sort of I don't want to say powerlessness, but mm-hmm. there's a there's a there's a feeling of almost um, surrender, I suppose. Mm-hmm. In the static frame for me, there's a certain surrender to the events, and there's a certain surrender to the dynamics, and a surrender to the way things go. And I think that in in that movie um, specifically, there was the the kind of the idea of watch this, you mm-hmm. know, watch this person's experience. Well, it's um, almost a theatrical experience. Yeah, and and the the great news about movies is that is that we all know is that if you're in vague command of all of your departments, mm-hmm. the most static shot um, is is so alive. You know, if 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 your if your design is right. If your look is right, if your light is right, if your sound is right, if your performer is right, if the eyes on your actor are correct, then the static frame becomes uh, still alive. Who were your inspirations when you look back? I mean, your youth was filled with movie sets and being around, I assume you were on your father's sets often, your mother as well. Um, Who were those people that inspired you that you either saw them work or you just saw their work? Uh, Mike Nichols, Mike Nichols, Mike Nichols. Really? Yeah. Uh, Mike was a really close friend of my dad's um, from Catch-22, you know, onward, yeah, and was very present. One of my favorite films. Yeah, so brilliant, and and, and really everything Mike uh, touched. And Mike was such a special uh, human being, really, in every way. Uh, starting out as a comedian. Starting out as a comedian, and just so quick and, and, and funny and brilliant and so uh, heartfelt and earnest and sort of humble and generous a really a really special person um he uh when my dad died he was around a lot he was around mm. a lot when my dad was sick and after my dad died he sort of took me to dinner and 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 said hey look you know i i know this is a, a weird time and you're in school and i think i was in, i was at nyu film school or usc at the time and and he said, like, you know, maybe just come and work for me for a while. And, and so on a movie called Wolf. Uh, yes, his people, <laughs> only horror movie. And his yet you've made movie. a career out of making horror movies. Exactly. And so Mike, um, Mike just became, Mike stood in for kind of the benevolent master, you know, sort of the, the, the Gandalf, um, mm. the, the, the guy who really does understand and knows, as far as I could tell, everything about the art um, of storytelling and movie storytelling. And I think I was really struck by The Graduate, which is a, a strangely static movie also, I think, in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. But so Mike was always sort of at the ready to talk to me. And I, when I sat down to try my hand at expressing myself through The Black Coat's Daughter and really kind of coming to grips with, with myself as a potential artist, I guess, um, it was Mike who I called and said, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> where do I start? Like, what's important? Where's the in here? Like, what am I missing? Um, and uh, he, Mike was the guy who would get on the phone with you for an hour and tell you. So he would read your script, and and you'd bounce ideas back. And it forth. wasn't even as it wasn't even as 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 sort of one for one as that. It was more. It was more. Mike had adages. He had these are the things that are that you do, and he, oh. these are the things you don't do. And a and book like, of rules. A book of rules. As soon as you can, let the audience know that you've got them. Like as soon as you can in the movie, let put the audience at ease and say we we're gonna take we're taking care of this for you. <laughs> we know what's good. We know what we mean. We know what's important. Uh, trust us, uh, and you'll be okay. It was one of the was one of them, and. Uh, um, I found that to be so kind of um, empowering and and generous, uh, so generous. So um, how great to Mike, have such a mentor. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, it, Mike Nichols. <laughs> yeah, in, in, pretty great. Yeah. Uh, aside from your own family yeah. collective there. Um, what do you think, if someone were to ask you, someone who was not in the film business, what is the job of a director? How would you describe what you do? Uh, well, translating. So there's translating, there's making decisions, and there's and there's having good taste. And I yeah. think that between translating, making strong decisions, and having good taste, you're surrounded by so many deeply capable people who can do their job so much far better than you could ever ask them to do their job. Um, I remember my dad had a thing on uh, Murder on the Orient Express where they were shooting something and uh, in one of the takes, a picture falls off the mantle and falls on the ground. And my, after they cut, my dad said to Sidney Lumet, he said, don't you want to cover that shot? Don't you want to cover that frame hitting the ground? And Lumet said, um, hey, I don't tell you how to act, do I? <laughs> and I thought that was such a... It's, at first, it seemed so strange. Like, he doesn't tell you how to act? Isn't really? that what the director yeah. does? And the answer to that question is no. The director doesn't tell you how to act. The, the director t- inspires you. The director inspires you and tells you what you're seeing. That's yes. how I've always seen it. And Beautiful. so when I was working with, you know, Kiernan Shipka on Black Hood's Daughter and... And not able to say to her, this is how you would act, or this is how you'll say this, or this is what, you know, none of that. It was more, this is what you see. Mm -hmm. And this is what you see on the inside of your eyeball. You know, like, this is what you see that no one else can see. And I think that when you put image into an actor's eyes, uh, and then the camera on the actor, um, that's the magic, right? That the camera can extract it. And only the director has an entire vision of what the movie is rather than just the actor's role within that movie. He or she better, you know? <laughs> yes. um, but so I think that, uh, so communicating, you know, communicating what's important, right? Because only I, I guess, really know that, especially if it's something that, especially if it's something that I've written. Yeah. You know, I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house, the ghost story that I made for Netflix. That no, but, you know, it was it was wonderful to sort of, for me to have this, kind of secret that I could that I could parse out whenever I wanted mm. to that it was about me and my dad and everyone and everyone was sort of what what do you mean it's it's about an old lady who lives in a house with the ghost and the thing is like yeah yeah no it's not it's about that I couldn't know my dad that's mm. what this is about and so when the time came for me to sort of sidle up to Ruthie Wilson um you know off camera and say this is what the movie's about you know yeah. uh and you get to sort of clue people in um, the, chosen really people. the chosen people. The chosen people. You know, everybody needs to know. You yeah. know what I mean? Like some people should just think it's a ghost thing. Um, but when you're tra- when you tra- when you're able to clearly translate what's salient and meaningful uh, and profound for you about what you're doing, um, your your department heads really they 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 take off running. In a good way. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they, they hit the ground running. They can't get working fast enough. Yeah. When they understand what they're doing, they get excited that you're doing something unique and special. Absolutely. And to inspire a crew as well as a cast in that way is is one of the main jobs. Absolutely. Inspiration, communication, uh, choosing, you know, and as, as small as you want it to be the blue car or the pink car, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and then and then where the camera goes is, the, is obviously the... the the most essential uh, choice and where the camera goes is, is where the eye is. And it's where the, and the, when I say I, I mean the E Y E and also just the letter I, it's like, where am I in this uh, scenario? 
Tell me how your work as an actor informed your work as a filmmaker. Um, it's funny because my the kind of acting, like the the, the passage of my life that was that was kind of me. In a way, I don't want to give myself a hard time, but sort of pretending to be an actor, you know, I, in the sense that I never really felt like I was in command of my instrument. I never mm. felt like I really knew what I was doing. I never really felt confident that that I could get what was in here out there. Was it not your passion? It was certainly not my passion. It was like a placeholder. It was it was a placeholder while I figured other things out, you know. Because of your family situation? Yeah, it's like my dad died and I and I was I was in film school and then I was with Mike and then I was trying to kind of figure out what that was going to be like and I couldn't kind of get myself started and then I sort of you know, I was kind of regressing into some stuff and I was sort of wandering aimlessly a little bit and it kind of got to a point where I sort of felt like, I guess people work. Like, I guess that's what uh, adults <laughs> yes. uh, do. So what am I, What can I do? I can't, uh, I have no confidence to, to, to like write my own things or, or anything. So I kind of had to, to sort of park all of that and, and take opportunities were given to you. I made them, you know, I made them. Yeah. I felt, you know, yes, yeah, there was a large part of me that felt sort of entitled, like, Oh, people will give me things like mm. this. This will be easy enough. My dad was who my dad was. And so there's a, there's a certain amount of nepotism or a certain amount of freebie. There's like a, there's a, you know, there's, there's like the door prize that I may be entitled to some amount of something. And it was sort of spiritually bankrupt in a way mm. for me to be doing that. And it felt spiritually bankrupt increasingly. That's and very self-aware for someone very young. Nowadays. Realize. Nowadays. At the time, I think I was a little bit of a jerk, kind of. I was sort of really? a little bit like, not gimme, gimme what's mine, because there's no such thing in this town. Like, you, you get what they give. You know what I mean? Like, You're you right. can take it. So you got to earn it. You got to earn it. And so in some cases, I did. But increasingly, it became kind of nonsensical to me that I was that I was acting like that, or it became... Like I say, spiritually kind of uh, false, um, and it wasn't until my mom died. I was I actually had a job on a television set. On my September 11th was my first day on this television oh job. Yeah, you know, I was doing several episodes on a show, and it kind of, you know, out of everything that that event did for me, one of the things that it did over time was to sort of reset me and mm. to kind of take me out of all of the what, what I wasn't and and and. And I was able to, over time, it took time to find my way back to what I really wanted to do, which was to be, you know, Tim Burton. Right. That's all I wanted. All I wanted was to be the guy who made Beetlejuice. You know, Beetlejuice, I wore the heads down on my Beetlejuice VHS (laughs) real fast when I was 14. So, yeah, I was going to ask about the choice to do horror genre material. So far, the three features that you've made have been in that genre, and often they're period films as well. And what the process was in getting to that level of choice. I felt like, you know, I'd always, I had been impacted by horror movies as a kid um, and impacted by what my dad did, obviously, and felt like, you know, I, I didn't have the kind of relationship with my dad where there was sort of an exchange of much. There wasn't much of an exchange of much of anything between me and him. And so I think I, I, I wanted to reflect that which I could connect to um, with him. So that became part of kind of almost like I wanted that aspect of legacy. And so when I when I got myself kind of back on my feet and, and started to write The Black Host Daughter as the first thing, the question was, what do I want to see? What what kind of thing do I want to experience? And, and 
right around the same time I watched um, The Strangers and uh, mm-hmm. Let the Right One In. And I watched them both. Oh. I'd never seen either of them. And I watched both of them kind of one night after the other. And I was struck by how sad they were. Uh, the Strangers, especially, almost in a way, I was struck. Really surprised me what a kind of a tragic, mm-hmm. kind of a heartbreak that movie is. And and then getting to know Brian uh, Bertino, who wrote and directed it, you know, and seeing where it comes from that that thing you're talking about. You talked about it in your intro. It's like we all go through some really rough stuff. Well, not all of us, but you go through some rough stuff, and then you learn, you find a way to translate. Um, and in Brian, I, I found sort of a, a a kindred spirit of someone who had really lost too much. Um, and had 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 through the lens of the horror genre seen a way to kind of explore that, um, to kind of uh, air it out, to kind of release it. I think is probably part of part of what it is. And so, you know, the the horror genre at the time when I was writing that stuff, it hadn't had its renaissance yet. It was still mm-hmm. kind of a slum. You know, it was still like, oh yeah, how do we make movies that that play really well on Friday and Saturday and then we're so embarrassed by them on Monday that they're gone. <laughs> like that's what horror movies were. Yeah. And that was like Well you know, they were gutter movies. They were gutter yeah. movies. And it wasn't until I did mine and then right around the same time it was It Follows and The Witch and the Babadook and all these movies where people were like, oh right, there's like a real humanism to these things and there's always sort of, been good ones always have but they been. have not been on the forefront they have not been on the forefront and and obviously now is sort of like the salad days of all time salad days for it the horror genre is. so that's that's great well the issue of fairy tales and their relationship the grim fairy tales were not happy little disney movies um and what you have done with gretel and hansel it takes it even further than the Brothers Grimm did. So tell me about your fascination with fairy tales and how it fed into this cinematic expression. I think that what is what appealed to me most about the project when it came to me and so retroactively appeals to me about fairy tales in general is the elegant simplicity, right? They're not it's not the idea is that it's not crowded with incident. There's not a lot of twists and turns. It's it the the the, the narratives are very straightforward and very kind of. You leave, this happens, you go home. You know, it, it's it's almost like baseball, right? It's like you, you, you get a hit, you go out into the terrible world of first base, second base, third base, and then you make it back to home. And fairy tales, ones like Hansel and Gretel or, or, or Little Red Riding Hood, are so kind of um, elemental and almost unconscious in their simplicity. You know, it's almost like you're in a subconscious kind of um, a very archety- archetypal... Um, basic look at things in uncomplicated and unfettered and a sort of uncrowded. And I really go for that. I really go for, you've seen my movies. I really go for like sparse and mannered and deliberate mm-hmm. and poised. And I felt like those stories have always just been that, you know, um, not worried overly about too many things happening and not mm-hmm. worried about the context of the bigger it's world. It's a direct arc. It's a direct yeah. arc and it's a private one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, no one thinks about, you know, it doesn't matter in Little Red Riding Hood who the queen is mm-hmm. or what country we're in or what day of the week. It, none of this, it's all irrelevant. It's too, it's too elemental. Well, there's not a big cast in any of your movies either. No, nope. no. Nope. They're very intimate. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I prefer that. I think for the same reason, I I don't like watch a lot of episodic hmm. stuff only mm-hmm. because it's just like I don't. Uh, maybe it's just my brain. Maybe Can't I'm, stay maybe on that like train. There's too many yeah. things happening to me, people. And in this, yeah. So one of the again, nice sort of sparse elemental um, 
qualities of, of fairy tales and of Gretel, uh, Gretel and Hansel or Hansel and Gretel is that there's just uh, yeah three people and the movies for as far as I can tell pretty much three people yeah yeah now the casting process as a former actor and as the son of actors um, tell me how you approach it and what your casting sessions are like I go in making sure that I know is absolutely as little as possible about what I want or what I'm looking for. I, I, I think that's, I don't know. I, I wouldn't understand going into a casting session looking for something. For I, somebody I, to do what you've got do in your Do what head. you've got in your head or, or she has to be this type or, or something like that. I think that that's um, kind of insane. I think that I, I do believe in the sort of that person is out there, you know, and, and if you're lucky, they come in the room, you know what I mean? Like, and I've been lucky in that in that sense that I've found those those people who fit without knowing anything about what I was looking for, especially with the witch in this in this case. You know, yes. people kept asking me, "What's the witch going to be like? What's the witch going to be like?" And I was like, I, "I don't. She'll be like she is when she shows herself to me, and 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 then it'll be right. And with any luck, she'll be available." That so person. did you read Alice Krieg for the? We part? read Alice yeah. Krieg. We 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 read a lot of people, and we had a lot of people make tapes. You know, which. For actors of a certain generation, making tapes is kind of what? What do you mean yes. make a tape? How do, what is yeah. why do, do I do do that? Alice's tape was um in and of itself a really kind of special thing. Uh so she sent a self tape. She sent from a self tape yeah. from London that was so bananas and so kind of so <laughs> vibey and so rich and so kind of textured and the sound on it was weird and her costume was amazing. It was so dark. There was just she was so in it, it was it was immediately obvious that she was the right person. It, it's just that thing. You you don't know you what you in some cases the beginner's mind of show me what I want. Uh, works. I've I've found that to be the case in casting. Well, you give them the rope. You give them the rope, and they and, use their equipment. They use their equipment, and they f- and they fill the thing, and they understand. You never know who's going to understand you, yeah. right? You never know who's going to yeah. who who's going who you're going to make sense to. Well, if anyone would having, I read a lot of actresses for Mary Brady in Sleepwalkers. Yeah, but I had seen Alice in Ghost Story. And she blew my mind. And yeah. when she came in and did her reading for uh, Sleepwalkers, it was like explosive. Sure. It was this. We're done. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know, next. let's yeah, no. let's just start shooting. Okay, absolutely. Uh, and she's an amazing actress. Who, in this case, she played a part cat creature. And yeah. so, utilizing that physicality of rubbing up against and the sensuality of her character, tell me some of the things that she brought to the character of the witch in Gretel and Hansel. She brought, she, you know, all of the things that you would want. We built her, we built the witch's character from the, her broken heart outward, right? Mm. So it, 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 we, we, found, we found what the mannerisms were and we found what the sort of level of aging on her face was and we found what her, her kind of, her movement uh, all came from what had, broken her initially from the inside you know and and that and that was that to me that aspect of of villains so-called villains or monsters the fact that they're just living their own story the best that they can it happens their stories happen to be shit stories they're they're really (laughs) they're broken people talk about tragically broken Mm -hmm. people um so once we had found what was wrong with her or what had happened to her that had turned her into the thing that she was and then how she felt about that in the present um, 
then everything sort of became more clear and and it became well if this is someone who who periodically who serially uh abducts murders children and then eats them that's a cycle right so uh like any sort of serial killer may have a cycle right where or any or an animal in the, in the, a wolf may have a cycle where you know, it, there's they're really hungry, then they feed, and then they're fine for a while, and they're really <laughs> hungry, and then they feed, you know. And so we found the cycle for her, and then we pinpointed where she was on the cycle and how right. that felt. And um, she, you know, then she kind of had a limp, and then she sort of had her way of putting her shoulders, and then she sort of had the look on her face, and then she sort of had this self-disgust, the disgust with herself, which I thought was so important. It was so important that she beheld herself as essentially horrific, as disgusting, you know, as, as an addict can feel at the very bottom, right? When it's mm-hmm. like, what have I become? And I felt like the what have I become aspect of the witch was something that that I didn't think fairy tales had movie fairy tales had really gone for right right well there's an interesting collision of intellect and passion in your movies where things explode but they're always very reasoned and there's reasons for it and the minds of the characters are very reasoned and follow logic and intellectual motion so tell me about the process the writing process and how much of that goes on the page and how much of it remains in your hands as a director i I try to put everything on the like i try to put as much as i possibly can on the page and sometimes that's I would say for the most part that really works out. You know, some sometimes you end up with uh, your your kind of line producer saying, "Well, we've done a breakdown, and actually the script that's a hundred pages is actually forty pages of shootable stuff, <laughs> right. or something like that." You know, yeah. that was sort of the case for "I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House," where it was like it had been written as a kind of a poem, right? And strangely formatted. I had done a mm-hmm. bunch of stuff on it that was... So it wasn't the typical final draft. It was It was yeah. final draft, but everything was left adjust, left aligned and, right. and, and there was no kind of break... Uh, characters' names were never shown. Like, it was just... Anyway, it, it read more like one person's experience. It mm-hmm. read more like an out an outpouring of one person's, uh, one person's thing. Um, so in the, in the writing of everything, I kind of can't help but color it a lot. I mean, a lot of screenplays, you, as you know, we read them and they're very kind of instructive. It's like, this is, we'll need to be at the bank on during the day and we'll need this many extras so that they can say this. And then, and obviously that's essential. But for me, I try to write into my, uh, scripts, especially into sort of the action lines, into the stage direction, stuff that you could never see stuff that you could never film, stuff that you can never, you know, a smell or things like that, you know, things that an get... An internal thing. An internal thing, something I believe to be true about the situation that, again, you couldn't shoot it. You couldn't see it. It's not, I believe there's a glass on the table. Um, it's, I believe this is the kind of house that has in the cupboards glasses that are too, that are dirty or right, whatever. You right. would never see those, but that's... All it does is give to your designers more... And right. when you give your actors and your crew all everybody see the layer, we get on the same page yeah. so much more quickly because it's right there, and it may mean something totally different. To there are dirty glasses in the cupboard may mean something completely different to the costumer, and I hope that it does mm-hmm. because then then now you're moving now you're really kind of like now you're a machine with moving parts and if she thinks that dirty glasses in the cupboard means one thing and I think it means another, well we'll probably find a pretty great 
texture out of out of out of that. Now, Alice's complete lack of ego and vanity is really on display, probably in this movie more than any other. Um, she's a beautiful woman, yeah. but not in Gretel and Hansel she isn't. I mean, what's going on in her dark heart is expressed outwardly in her physicality. Tell me about how that came to be. It, how she how she does that, I can't say. She did say very early on, because I had sort of retooled all the dialogue to feel... I rewrote all the dialogue to make it... I wanted to really to really punch up the quality of this is a fairy tale. It's, therefore, I wanted what people, the things that people said to sort of be um, almost like proverbs, almost like little truths, mm-hmm. little like nuggets of, of experience that were almost Shakespearean in their kind of like quick turn of a phrase or, you know, you know something that's like real at one point, the Gretel's sitting at the table and it's laden with all of this food. And she says, well, I assume you're going to have guests. And, and Alice says, guests, I'd rather have roaches, you know, <laughs> things like that. Yes. And like just little cute yeah. little mm, moments that made the language feel literary. And Alice came up to me on the first day and she said, you must promise me that you won't let me fall in love with the language. You must promise me that I'll ne- you'll never let me say anything that makes it seem like I like what I'm saying mm. or that I'm proud of how great this writing is or that I am enjoying what I'm saying. You know, if you ever catch me doing that, you got to stop me right away. And I felt like it was such a, uh, I was, first of all, I was so flattered and I was so kind of like, yeah, of course, sure. She she doesn't like any of the shit that comes out of her mouth. She doesn't like any of the <laughs> shit that goes in her mouth. She doesn't like, you know, like her mouth is a problem for yes. her. So she, uh, yeah, how, how, she, how she gets it out of her, I don't know. Well, she's such a smart and canny actress yeah. and really in touch with her instrument. Yeah. Um, what did, what were your conversations with the makeup artists uh, uh, sound like? Uh, what did you say about what Alice should look like. Well, we, you know, we, we, because the the sort of general approach was be faithful to the fairy tale. Don't add where we don't have to add. Don't put dragons or orcs or crossbows (laughs) or castles or any of this stuff that's not, that's not elemental to the telling. That's not part of the very elegant, profoundly elegant structure of the original. That's what we want to do. We want to harness all of that. So within that, every time we would see something that was true for the fairy tale, we would try to pull it out and say, okay, how, do, how is this something that we can show in a modern way or in a way that's just clear and in a, without adding? One of the things, obviously, was just sort of the very elemental basic concept of cannibalism, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the word when one, I think if you were to say to your average film goer, Hansel and Gretel, give me 20 words. I don't think cannibalism is one of them. <laughs> no. Do you know what I mean? Despite that Despite being the, the crux of the story. The central thing that's happening yes. is cannibal. That's what's going on. There's people eating people. That's all that's going on. <laughs> and so cannibalism became really important as something we could see. We, uh, she wore these unbelievable teeth that are all shaved down like those cannibal yes. tribes they do. Were nubs. Like cannibal, it these little like pointy little nubs. Yes. Um, and that kind of thing, as you know, for an actor, they love stuff like that. Like when you can put when you can put nubby little sharp teeth into an actor <laughs> and it changes their kind of just the way that the words come out of them. 
um, it just it 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 blossoms into all of this um, all all this other stuff. So that's an example. It's like you know you pull cannibalism out, and then you say, well, what about cannibalism? Can we deploy in this movie? And uh, teeth was certainly one of them. <laughs> now, a lot of people don't know that your father also was a writer and director. Um, the Last of Sheila, which he wrote with Stephen Sondheim, was something. Was that something that inspired you as well? Did he talk with you about the process of writing and filmmaking aside from the acting? Yeah, I think he. I think he really was proud of The Last of Sheila, and there were. It's a great movie. It's a really great movie. It's a really great script, and it's a really great experience, and it's so. Um, it's so sly in its humor and it's Mm -hmm. so kind of, you know, it's on the face of it, obviously it's funny because it's humorous and it's intelligent because it's an insider's look at Hollywood and how people are and all that. And then, then the trickery of the clues and the kind of the Agatha Christie twists of the, the reveals of what all this are all, all, all really impressive. But I know that my dad was as sort of proud of the actual writing like the the content of what he had done as he um, should be as he should have been and it was it was it was something that that I think probably would have liked to do much more of mm-hmm. and, and and maybe could have um I love that movie and I love uh I I I love how tongue in cheek it is uh how intelligent it is and I think that kind of humor I've tried to have in places and I've tried to put it into Gretel and Hansel too, just like a little bit of an, just a little slightly more sophisticated humor Mm -hmm. that's just sort of lurking, you know? Um, But the last of Sheila, uh, yeah, that it meant a lot to me, I think to see my dad be capable Mm -hmm. um, outside of, uh, outside of, outside of acting. Well, you and I met 30 years ago. You were 16 years old uh, when I worked with your dad on psycho four and it could have been, and at times was, a very intimidating experience sure. for a new young director who'd, whose previous feature was Critters 2. And working <laughs> with my first movie star, yeah. who had worked with Hitchcock and, and William Wyler and, and, and Orson Welles and Mick Garris. <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> you know, there's a punchline. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and he obviously knew more about Norman Bates than anybody did. Sure. But we had a script that was written by Joe Stefano, who'd written the original one. So this was the first time that had happened in the sequel world. And he was a fascinating and complicated guy because he knew what he was doing, and he would challenge me often. And I learned a lot working with your dad. And not all of it was fun. I I can imagine (laughs) that not all of it was fun. But all of it was fantastic and educational and amazing. And a lot of it was a lot of fun. But... To get into a conversation at one point where we were setting up to do a scene, I had mentioned, you know, we don't want to enter the world of camp, which uh, at times the Psycho 2 and 3 did. Absolutely. Psycho 3 is very campy. Particularly Psycho 3. But then your dad made it into a competition. He said, tell me, what do you mean by the word camp? Tell me, show me how you want me to read it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, oh shit, here yeah. we go. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. Careful what you say. Yeah. And but it was a great experience. And I just wonder what your experiences were like on on the sets, if you were able to be on the sets when he was directing, and what that was like for you. Was it educational, or you weren't there? Yet? I wasn't there so much, but I did. I, I mean, I remember seeing 
Psycho 3 certainly, and the movie that, that he had to do beforehand, which was called Lucky Stiff. It was oh, called yeah. Mr. Christmas Dinner, which was, I thought, a better title. And then yes. it changed to Lucky Stiff. And there was a lot of kind of stuff where people would kind of walk, go to the door of their house to go to the kitchen and they'd walk through it. But then when they walk through it, they'd be in a, they'd be walking through the set of a diner. Like the, right, that was how right. he kind of went the from scene to scene. His yeah. transitions were really batty. Um, <laughs> and in Psycho 3, there was a lot of stuff like that too. Where it was like, oh, that's not how you would put together a movie like this and mm-hmm. not a Psycho movie. You wouldn't kind of be funny about it. You know, you wouldn't be... And also Psycho 3 has a lot of kind of sexuality in it that's, that, that a lot of the other Psycho movies I don't think have really at all. either suggested, but he really kind of took that to another level so i think i think he had a certain trickster quality to him as sort of like a little bit of an imp um mm-hmm. you know bad boy kind of like let's fuck with this a little bit Break how do we rules. undermine the rules a little yeah. bit and i think that if i took anything away from something as kind of uh, middling as let's say lucky stiff mm-hmm. it's the that quality of of there aren't rules and if you can if you can kind of justify your thing within the context of what you're doing then then it works so who are the other filmmakers that that you appreciate particularly in the horror genre since that's where you are right now um either movies or filmmakers that really excite you uh nicholas rogue uh mm-hmm. is probably for for me you know like don't look now yeah it's probably the top of the is probably like close to the top of the pyramid at cronenberg is i i find Cronenberg to be um, to have just kind of what we're talking about, which is there's a there's a, an adult sophisticated humor to what Cronenberg is doing yeah. that I find irresistible. Mm-hmm. Um, I really uh, respond to uh, David Lynch. I mean, I think David Lynch has is kind of like not a typically a horror director. I think uh, I think Eraserhead is a horror movie. Absolutely, and you Mulholland know, Drive. And Mulholland is too. Drive is, and and um, there's one of the other ones, Lost Highway. Oh yeah. Uh, but I think that um, something like Eraserhead, what Eraserhead does for me so much is it says that the that the movie's so coded, right? It's such a it's a code, and once you kind of find your way under the skin of the code, the whole movie kind of accordions out into a whole other thing. I saw that movie probably 10 times as a too young person and thought, (laughs) wow, man, that's really weird and crazy and what a trippy dude and whoa, that's nuts. (laughs) And then it wasn't until I had had my first two children and went to see it on the big screen and realized that it was a horror movie about having kids. Mm. And I didn't know, I had no idea. And as soon as the code was kind of unlocked, um, the thing became such a revelation. And I think that... Lynch's sort of um, courage and his his kind of confidence. Mm-hmm. I, I think that a lot of horror movies feel like they're not made with confidence sometimes, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I feel like David Lynch's m- movies, especially the scary ones, are so confident. Well, it's interesting that somebody like Lynch and Cronenberg seem to make films in their own world where they're oblivious to rules. Yeah. They don't even realize there are any, and yeah. so they are their own filmmakers entirely and yeah. it's kind of exciting to see things like that happen yeah and i've and i've i'm i'm sort of trying to i'm i think what i'm most proud of i guess if i if i can actually like get myself to the point of being proud of, <laughs> the of any of, of this yeah. yeah um it, it, with a movie like uh, gretel and hansel is that 
I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of what we did hasn't, it just hasn't been done. And that isn't to yeah. say that, that we, that we did anything revolutionary, but I think that we made certain stylistic choices and certain sort of tonal choices and rhythmic choices that, um, people just don't make and, and maybe they're going to work and maybe they're not going to work or maybe they're going to work for half the people or a quarter of the people or 75% of the people, whatever. But I think that, um, conf- confidence in, in wanting to sort of, uh, um, add to the language, you know, add to the grammar of, of what can be done in, in, in movies and in horror movies. I think that's exciting. Well, that's what we started talking about was uh, the idea that you already, through three movies, you have a voice. I, I hope so. Thank and you. a distinctive voice. You know, it's interesting. I lost a brother who was a PA on Psycho 4 um, within two weeks of your father's passing, both from the same issues. Mm-hmm. And it just brought together how important the time together on a film set is and how meaningful it is and it becomes frozen in time it always exists no matter who has passed afterwards it's always there do you revisit your father's films to to share time with your dad after all these years yeah i i do and i I share them with my kids and i and i share them with 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 people who who don't who didn't know him or, or don't know those movies. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be able, um, to, to do that. Um, what was, what was the question again? Like, what was, the... well, just revisiting someone. Revisiting, yeah. Passed. And then, and then, yeah. and then, and then making a movie like I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house, which is really kind of about that. It's really kind of about revisiting the past or revisiting someone who you missed. Yeah. You know, not someone who you miss, but someone who you missed, right. and I feel like f- for me, p- kind of part of the story of me and my dad was that I, I, you know, he died when I was eighteen, and he was such a sort of a secretive person, and, and obviously wearing a mask on top of a mask on top of a mask on top of a mask, the 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 unknowability um, became the kernel of truth in "I'm the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House," and it, it became um, about how we how important it is to want to know somebody who came before you right. even if it's it was impossible and continues to be impossible and so it, more than kind of revisiting my dad's movies there was the feeling of in making that picture the feeling of revisiting the experience of mm. being just that much removed from being able to know him Right. So he was sense? a very private sort of guy. Very yeah. private sort of guy and, and conflicted, obviously, and, yeah. and living his kind of own, like I say, wearing his own mask and sort of, mm-hmm. you know... Um, so you have these recollections of him on film, but they're not necessarily your dad. They're the roles he played. They're the roles he played and played so well. So uh, well. And disappeared into them so well, um, you know, uh, that that it's nice to see him, but I think that, that more than anything, the experience of making, I have the pretty thing in the house that lives in the house was, was, um, cathartic is such a kind of a crap word. It, it no, was, but it's a real word. Yeah, it's it a real word, but it, it, it was more, it was more kind of encouraging. How okay. about that? Like it encouraged me a little bit to feel, to say, I didn't know that guy mm. and it's okay. And yeah. I'm figuring it out and, and maybe I'll know more and, and you never know how things go and what will reveal itself. And, and sometimes as Bob Dylan says, nothing is revealed. Like it's, you know, it, you kind of go with the flow, but you put yourself out there. And when I, when I decided to, when it became important to me to put a dedication at the beginning of my movie to my dad, you know, I don't, 
I've never seen that, you know? And that yeah. was, that was me very boldly saying, um, this is what I'm trying. You yeah. know, I'm trying, I'm trying to be with that experience. Uh, and the title itself, I'm the pretty thing that lives in the house. That's, I am. That's yeah. me. Yeah. I, I'm the I. Well, boldness is a rare commodity in film these days. And it's not allowed. <laughs> yes. But, but to, to make movies independently, that's kind of the only place you find it these days. Yeah, and which is part of the absolute mystification of, of what's happening with Gretel and Hansel, which is, you know, in is not unlike my other movies, is not, I don't think, a mainstream picture. Oh, it's definitely an art house it's horror film. It's an art house film. horror yeah. film that's going to be on 2,800 screens and is like has, has has Snapchat filters and like the whole thing. You know, like they're, <laughs> they're really treating it like it's like it's that. So uh, I'm up for it. Yeah. But it it is a different kind of vulnerability now. Yeah. What happens when uh, they say, Gretel and Hansel 2? <laughs> Uh, I say, great, sure, because you know something? <laughs> Do you want to make it? I'd be happy to, because it, I, I keep saying this to everybody, and I and maybe it's like lost on people or something like that. I'm so new at this. Yeah. Like, I'm so new at this. I made two movies right away, back to back. Um, February, uh, Black Coat's Daughter, and then I'm the Pretty Thing that Lives in the House, were like, a, were the, truly, photography was a year apart. Yeah. Um, February and then February, we made those two one year apart those movies, and so it's it was really just like it was like bang bang, and then it was a minute before before this, but still like I've only been making movies for four years or something like that, and mm-hmm. I've got these three kind of things. So and those it, years fly by. They fly by, and every opportunity is such a gift, you know what I mean? And I and I say that to Orion and to MGM all the time. Yeah, I, I say to them, I pretty much whenever I see them, I say thank you for the opportunity. When you work independently in smaller budget films, as your films have been, you do have more autocracy. You do. Uh, And do you look forward to the day of doing a studio feature? Yeah, I mean, the the funny thing is that Gretel and Hansel is a studio feature. Yeah, it's an Orion movie. It's an Orion movie, but it happens to be still a, whatever it was, six or seven million dollar movie. So, Mm. like, it's not uh, by any means, uh, you know, like that. It's, It's still a small movie. I think that what I what I learned most and was happiest to learn is that a big part of my job is to make sure that I'm not the only one who understands <laughs> what's happening or I'm not the only one who thinks that's good or yeah. I'm not the only one who's happy with the approach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, I like, again, my, my, my hat's off and my head down to Orion and MGM for letting me do the movie the way that I wanted to do it and then to get so so staunchly behind it um i think is a is a really rare thing within that i acknowledge and have acknowledged to everybody that i would have liked to have given them 10 percent more of what they wanted 20 mm. percent more of what they wanted because what, at the end of the day what did they want would you say close-ups really do you know what i mean yes, like coverage. A, a, yeah coverage as as cravenly weird as that sounds like close-ups yeah um, my the design of the movie that the DP and I came up with is like we did the close-ups. We weren't interested. Mm-hmm. You know, we were interested in a storybook look. For and it's this. A, well, every every scene in the movie is like turning the page of a book. And as it was meant to be, which is really gratifying for us, and I think ultimately gratifying for the movie. And I think it. I think visually, we 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 really nailed it. But you know, when you start to say things to a studio like, I don't plan on shooting close-ups, it's a tough one for them to swallow. Yeah, because in the editing room, they don't have any power because they don't have those pieces that they can tell you to cut to. 
And at times, to be honest with you, and, and as sure as I was that that was how I wanted it to be, uh, fuck them. They can't ever have a close-up because <laughs> there's not going to be a close-up that's going to exist. There are times still when I watch the picture now where I'm like, I should have been able to cut to a close-up. Yeah, I wish I had you know? that tight. And, yeah. and, and the thing about that is like, I would like to be able to cut to a close-up and it would not have negated my approach at all. Of course It wouldn't not. have hurt anything that we were doing, but it would have helped just that much. It is cinema. It is cinema. And I think that what I, like I say, what I got the most out of this is that like it's badass to come into a movie with as strong an approach as you can and then be ready to give up 25% of that just so that everybody's with you. Well, do you find when you get on the set, everything changes and you have to be nimble? Absolutely. And so the amount of planning... The best laid plans of mice and Yeah, men, right? it's like God never laughs harder than when people are making plans, right? So it's like <laughs> we we storyboarding and all this elaborate stuff, like we did it for the end sequence just because there was fire involved and we had to kind of be safe and organized and we had no time and we couldn't use our actors because they were kids. And you can't put kids next to fire and you can't have kids after all this. So we storyboarded that stuff. But then for the most part, the DP and I, we very loosely shot listed and then uh, found it as we as we were there, which um, is sort of maddening and it's sort of mm-hmm. panic inducing, and and especially when you're on twenty five days and your titular characters are children and there's no time. And, yeah. um, but I think that yes, more and more, the 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 element of the job that feels like. I can actually feel the confidence growing is in is in that aspect, the aspect of being on the set and saying, okay, I see it now. And rolling with punches. Rolling with punches saying, I can see it now. I'm yeah. not I, I'm not it, it isn't it isn't harder that I now that I'm here. It's actually easier because I can see it. I'll often do a visual manifesto that I'll distribute to the uh, the key uh, crew people uh, and every weekend I will shot list the week's work but I never look at it never look at it uh, because I've done it in my head right. and now I'm ready to just roll right. and I love the freedom that that gives you, Absolutely. you know, you've done your homework but you're ready for the explosions that'll make an even better movie Absolutely. You know? and and like we say if, if, if your approach going in is really uh, bold uh, you've got room to breathe you know strangely and so the yeah. fact that we came in and we said, we're not shooting close-ups. Um, somehow they're letting us shoot this in a one five five to one aspect ratio. We don't know why. Yeah. That they're actually letting that happen. Uh, <laughs> I guess my explanation was compelling. It must have been. They approved it. Um, and we shot the whole movie on on an 18 millimeter lens. You know, like... Love it. I loved all of it too. Um, that confidence also helps you see, right? Because you're, you're working from something that's, that's in, the, in the mud. Yeah, one thing I learned when I was beginning was you want to trust people who've done it more than you and who know more than you do, but often they will take the tried and true rather than put a, dip their toe in a new pond. Yeah, you know? yeah. and, and we, we experienced that a little bit, sort of initial boots on the ground in, in Ireland where they don't make a lot of movies. They make, they make movies, but they really make, uh, you know, they really are proud of things like um, Vikings, the show mm. and stuff. And so yeah. it was the kind of thing we got there. And I think everybody, all the designers and all the department heads, their anticipation was, okay, we're making a period thing here. It's going to be a lot of like thatched roofs and buckles on shoes and kind of <laughs> dirty villagers with chickens and stuff like that. And, and I said, here's what it isn't. All of those things. <laughs> Right. If you everything you just named are they're now illegal. You cannot have any of them. And every day we would shoot, and the 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 AD would say, "Okay, how many extras do you want today?" I'd say zero. 
Yes. And they'd be like, well, what about the, the, the town square? I was like, yeah, no, no, no. It's the end of the world. There's no people. And I'm not interested in the faces of uh, a washerwoman or a guy <laughs> who sells pumpkins. Great. Um, how has parenthood affected you as a filmmaker? Uh, in I mean, in this, it's funny because it kind of happened accidentally, I guess, that my kids were have always been saying, when are you going to make a movie? We can see. When are you going to make a movie? <laughs> and of course, now my son, who's 15, can see everything. Right. Um, and we're kind of making our way through everything. And, you know, we watched Seven last week and mm-hmm. you know, the, the Ring and things like this. And so, um, but being able to to make something that they can see, they're going to see the picture tonight. And my daughter's 10, 11. She just turned 11. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit of a reach for her, you know, like, but I like that it's a little bit of a reach. That's my, the ambition, my ultimate ambition, to be honest with you, for this movie is that tweens will see it, not because I want their money. <laughs> right. Do you know what I mean? But because I want, I would love for younger audiences to say, oh, look, it's a movie that isn't treating me like I'm a kid or like I'm a dumb kid or like I'm a bored kid. I think the idea with this movie, we got the PG-13 rating that we wanted and it wasn't even that hard to get. And we were so th- I was so thrilled to have it because I thought it was the best advertising for the movie that we made because it's supposed to be something that's just too scary for kids, just right. out of their reach. And I think that's so important. I think it's so important to say you can do it. You know, you can do just this little bit more. It's going to be okay. It's what they do. It's why Disneyland works. You know, Disneyland works because they say you get on this ride and you wish this is the worst thing that's ever happened. And at the end of the day, then you get off the ride again and you're okay. Were you protected from what you could see as a kid? Yeah. um, To a certain point. I mean, I still remember the first like major kind of slumber party we had with all of our friends where it was like, all right, now we're going to watch a movie. And my brother and I have decided it's going to be Toxic Avenger. (laughs) And the kids and all the other kids are like eight. And it was like, here's the part where they roll over his head. And here's the part where he kills the kid on the bike and all this stuff. And and all of the other kids were like, oh, my God, are you kidding? Um, But yeah, we were we were. Like psycho, we didn't. None of us saw anything, any psycho, anything until yeah. I, I didn't see any psycho until I was like twelve or something, like yeah. thirteen. Like I, um, I saw it at the drive-in when it came out. Beautiful. Uh, it was. You're not old enough for that. Oh yes, I am. Wow. <laughs> but it was. I was a child. It's the hair. It must be the hair. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> I was a child, but what a revelatory experience! And I never imagined for years that thirty years later I would be directing your sure. father in Psycho Four. Awesome. Well, Oz, a real total pleasure, and all the best of luck with Gretel and Hansel, and uh, 30 years after meeting, so great to catch up with you. Let's do it again before another 30 years passes. I would love it. All right. Thanks a lot. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to producer Joe at Joe Russo Tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, mickgarrisinterviews.com. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. 
download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.